You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Having finished the book of Revelation, and we are going to do a Life of Messiah teaching series. So the idea is that we will be going through the life of Jesus using all four Gospels simultaneously, and hopefully that's going to be pretty fun. I'm not entirely sure how it's going to, going to play out in some ways yet, but it's going to be fun as we go through it. Hopefully it'll be one that will reap abundant rewards. Foundationally, what I really want from this is with all of us to emerge with a better, fuller picture of who Jesus is or who he was particularly and who he is now and of the message that he taught that we find for us in the Gospels. And it's impossible to deny whether you are a Christian or not that Jesus Christ is without doubt probably the most influential figure in human history just by measure of his impact. Opinions of him abound in this world. Some are good, some are bad, some are correct, some are very, very wrong. But the fact that so many people talk about him is at least intriguing. Let me just give you a few of these before we get into this. Most of you are familiar with this man, Gandhi, the political activist or ethicist, as he liked to be called, influential in peaceful protest and giving India independence. He said this about Jesus. He was a man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Gandhi. Napoleon Bonaparte, French military commander who would then become the emperor of France. He says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Einstein, I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of this type lacked the authentic vitality of Jesus. Give you a couple more. Vincent van Gogh. It is a very good thing that you read the Bible. The Bible is Christ, for the Old Testament leads up to this culminating point, Christ alone. He has affirmed as a principal certainty eternal life, the infinity of time, the nothingness of death, the necessity and raison d'etre of serenity and devotion. He lived serenely as a greater artist than all other artists, despising marble and clay as well as colour, working in living flesh, and that is to say, this matchless artist made neither statues nor pictures nor books, he loudly proclaimed that he made living men immortals. And then finally, let's look at John Knox, Scottish reformer. No one else holds or has held the place in the heart of the world which Jesus holds. Other gods have been as devoutly worshipped no other man has been so devoutly loved. And on and on, we could really go with quotes like this. My point is, not that I agree with all of these people's opinion about Christ, many of them were not believers, as we would say, but the very fact that such a broad cross-section of humanity has things like this to say about this person should, at the very least, pique your interest if you're not a believer, and if you are a believer, should inspire us more that amongst all of these people, we should be the ones that have things to say about Jesus Christ more than all of them. 
and they should be better and more well-informed than all of these statements here. And that is really one of the things that we're going to get out of this study. Why is it that this man was spoken of so much like this? He only really had a public ministry of three and a half years. That's all we have recorded for us. Just three and a half years of his teaching. And people thousands of years later are still talking about this man like no other. That is, for me, I find that extremely intriguing. And we're going to dig deep into why that is as we go through this study. And to do this, we're going to have to spend considerable time, and this may be too much time for some of you, looking at the history and background of the world that Jesus lived in, looking at what the world was like in the ancient Near East in the first century, because we have to understand his world. We have to understand what was going on in the nation at the time. We have to understand that when we read the New Testament, most of the discussions we see with the particular peoples, the groups, are all born out of the background and history leading up to this time, the context that we find. And we miss so much because we're unable to fully appreciate what has gone before. And therefore we read over his teachings and we read it through 21st century eyes. We apply it directly to ourselves as individualists as we often are, and we miss and butcher the point of much of his teaching. And we're not gonna do that. Hopefully, we're gonna, our attempt is we're not gonna do that. There will be a particular focus as we go through on the Jewish background of the Gospels and of Jesus Christ, because ultimately the life of Messiah plays out from a Jewish frame of reference. Much of the discussion and the debates and the teaching of Jesus are concerned with issues that are born of first century Jewish culture. And this is an area that will really help us get back to the world of Jesus. Really one of my main hopes for this is that we can enter into the world, almost like time traveling back through the literature and build up to the point of Jesus. And then as we go through the gospels, obviously we'll bring it up to our own time with application and things like that. However, this is an area, the Jewish background is an area that's most often neglected since about the third and fourth century in church history. The Jewish roots, as we call it, of the gospel were pretty much neglected as the Christendom became the state religion and is spread throughout the West, anti-Semitism creeped in, as we still see around today, and people did not want to talk of the Jewish Jesus. They were happy with the white Jesus or whatever Jesus you make him to be, but they were not happy with talking about the Jewish Jesus. So this is why we see much of the horrible things that have happened in the history of this world to them. In fact, church wars, government wars, political wars, church splits, and even new denominations have arisen all due to misunderstandings of the Jewish frame of reference. Churches have debated little phrases like to be born of water in the Gospel of John or eat my flesh, as Jesus says in the Gospel of, of, of John. All of those statements are extremely Jewish. They have a Jewish frame of reference. The church misunderstanding that has come up with things like baptismal regeneration, for example, born of waters. And that was a massive issue in the church. Denominations fought over it, people spit over it, has nothing to do with any of it, if you understand it from a Jewish frame of reference. Transubstantiation, another one, big issue with the Catholic Church. All of these mistakes have caused pain in the church, and they are misunderstandings because they didn't understand the Jewish frame of reference. So we're hoping to address some of these issues as we go through it. Much of the bad parts history of the church, of which many skeptics will point to and say, how can you be a believer? This is what the church does. Most of those periods are due to misunderstandings 
and different historical circumstances, which I'm hoping to address as we go through some of these things. Now, having said that, we can't just begin our journey by jumping straight into the Gospels. That would be way too easy, I'm afraid. We're not going to do that. You see, by the time we get to the Gospel period, the first century, much has happened that has prepared the way for this time. So we're going to have to go back and have a little look at some of the history before we get to the Gospel period. Before we go on, let me just say for those who are interested, uh, a quick word about methods and sources as we do a study like this. I, of course, will be using many of the great works from scholars that have gone before me. In particular, two have mentioned Alfred Edersheim. He was a Jewish believer in the early 19th century. He wrote a very famous book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And that work is very hard to digest because it's written in kind of 19th century language, but it is uh, extremely good. Uh, more recently, a Jewish believer, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, has done Life of Messiah from a Jewish perspective. I'll be drawing on that too. We'll be following the Gospel Harmony. A Gospel Harmony is, a, is an attempt by scholars to put the Gospels in kind of a chronological order. I'll be using Dr. A.T. Robinson's Gospel Harmony as my outline. There are really two main ways that people study the life of Christ. One would be the geographic approach. The other would be what they call the thematic approach. The geographic approach follows the, the life of Jesus basically with where he was, starting off in his Galilean ministry, then his Judean ministry. And the thematic approach basically focuses more on the link between teachings and events that happened in different places. I will merge those two approaches on occasion, but broadly I'll be following the thematic approach. Of course, on many occasions, I will seek to introduce my own findings from my own study and thoughts. And finally, we also will seek to just do exposition of the text as we go through. We will seek to make contemporary applications to the text as we go through. So we're sort of blending all of these things to one, which is why I said it will be a massive undertaking. I can't 100% guarantee it, but I'd say it with quite a lot of certainty. There will hopefully be nothing like this at all elsewhere going on in the UK in the church. This will be a completely unique study. So basically, let's have fun as we go through this. Let's read a scripture just before we get into some of this. It says Galatians 4, chapter 4 to 5. It says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The fullness of time came. That means the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, into this world. This great culmination of God's redemptive plan for humanity came when the fullness of time had arrived. Or your Bible might read when the appointed time or the set time had arrived. What that basically means is that Jesus came into this world at exactly the precise time that God had planned so that he could fulfill all the prophecies, all the predictions, all the things that God had said he was going to do in the Old Testament at that particular time. And also this was the way that God had arranged it. And hopefully as we go through history, what I want you to learn about studying history, it's not like when you're sitting at school and history is very boring and it's a lot of dates and disconnected thoughts of different people. What I want you to see from this study is that in some way or another, all history can be connected back to leading us up to this point. God's appointed time. Everything had to be arranged. Every, the right empire had to be in place, the right method of execution, the right people who God would be using at this time. And you'll see his sovereign hand all throughout history. And it's a very powerful apologetic for the truth of the scriptures and the story that we're looking at. So 
We're going to look at what is called the 400 silent years. This session and next, the next week's session, the 400 silent years, quite often called the intertestamental period in some literature. This is basically the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's that period in between. So it doesn't actually just run straight on from the Old Testament to the time of Jesus. It's called the silent years. It's, just, it's a bit of a silly name because so much happened in those 400 years. We're going to look at what happened in those 400 years. But it's called the silent years in relation to God had no prophets speaking during that time. The last prophet was the, the ministry of Malachi in about 450 BC. And that's the last book of the Old Testament. If you look at the last book of the Old Testament in our Bibles, it's the book of Malachi, 450 BC. And then the next prophet that we see was John the Baptist, who was first century preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Much discussion occurs about why God was silent, supposedly throughout those periods. For me, I don't think the mystery is that great. God had already laid down all the prophetic revelation that he needed his people to know at that time. And as we discover, Israel were not listening at that time either. So therefore, things changed slightly. However, during these 400 years, huge amounts of prophecy was in fact fulfilled with world empires. And that's what we're going to be looking at in some way. God had not abandoned his people at this time. Rather, he was preparing to do something even more amazing. Rather than continually sending them more prophets now, he was preparing to speak his greatest and most powerful word to mankind. He was going to send his son. And that's what we're building up to. But let's go back to the end of the Old Testament history. If you have read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is towards the end of Old Testament history. Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonian Empire for 70 years. If you remember, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians and Cyrus the Great decided that the Jews could return home and rebuild their temple. You remember the story in Daniel 5. The Babylonian king Belshazzar is having this feast and he's abusing all the temple, temple vessels and the handwriting on the wall appears. If you've heard that expression, handwriting on the wall, it means your doom is soon approaching. This is what was happening here. And Cyrus and the Persians took the city of Babylon and Cyrus allowed the Jews, to, he was quite favorable to the Jews, he allowed the Jews to return home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And this here on the screen is what we call the Cyrus Cylinder. It's one of, you know, I think they have a, a model of this in the United Nations. It's considered to be one of the first models of human rights. This was basically how he would treat foreign captives when they took over their empire. And this is details how he would allow the Jews to go back home. The Cyrus Cylinder is quite an important archeological find. The Persian Empire was favorable to the Jews, and many of them did not return home. They were quite comfortable where they were, so they continued to disperse across the Persian Empire and form communities all around the world at this time. However, there was one thing between this Persian period and the New Testament that is worth mentioning that is very significant for our studies as we get into this life of Messiah. There's one thing that you do not find mentioned in the Old Testament, but is very significant in the New Testament, and you find it all over the place, and that is the synagogue. Okay, You can't read the Gospels without encountering the synagogue. We still see synagogues all over the place today. They're different. We're talking about first century synagogues in this study here. The ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the apostles and Paul and all these people often revolved around the synagogue. It was during this period in the 400 silent years that synagogues first appeared which is why you don't read about them in the Old Testament, but you read about them all the time in the New Testament. 
They became, because the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians, the Jewish people were spread out in judgment and dispersed across the world. They needed a way to, to still have their center of worship, their place of worship. And these exiled communities constructed the synagogues. And they are very much responsible for keeping the Jews as a distinct people and keeping them from fully assimilating and becoming lost in the culture. If you read the New Testament, synagogues are the focus of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 4, 23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all of the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 1, 39, he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And most famous of these synagogues until recently, but the most famous one that most people know is the synagogue at Capernaum. It's a very good example in the hometown here, Capernaum, of the town on the shores of the Galilee. If you read chapter John, verse 6, 58, this is where Jesus it said, this is the bread which came out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, what they don't tell you, unless you really dig in, is that this synagogue actually, what you're seeing there is the remains of a fourth century synagogue. Now, it was built on top of the first century synagogue, so the location is still absolutely accurate, but they are actually fourth century remains. So that's a little less interesting when you, when you see it like that 400 years after Christ. However, that situation changed a few years back now, in 2009, in fact, one of the synagogues that is around the Galilee, and they know now was in fact the chief synagogue around the Galilee. So when it says Jesus was teaching in all their synagogues around the Galilee, he definitely would have taught in the most popular, in the biggest synagogue, is in the town of Magdala. And Magdala, of course, is where we get the, the name. You may remember the, the lady Mary of Magdalene in the Bible. That's, this was her hometown. This is where she came from. In 2009, in excavations, they discovered the oldest synagogue that has ever been found in the land of Israel now. So this is the synagogue of Magdala. And this is actually a first century synagogue. So this is the synagogue that was there at the time of Jesus. And I find this absolutely fascinating. You can pretty much say without a doubt, Jesus would have stood within those confines there and taught the scriptures. And one of the most amazing things about the Magdala, the synagogue here, it's very ornate. It has these wonderful mosaics all around it which is why they believe it was probably one of the chief synagogues around this area. But one of the things they found, if you can see there, kind of in the center is that weird stone, like that rectangular object there. That is called the Magdala stone. They, they've labeled it and give you a close-up of it there. It stood at the center of the synagogue and it's ornately decorated with, with various different things. They believed that this was used as a holder for Torah scrolls. So when the rabbis or the speaker would come up and they would read their Torah portion and then teach from it, they would, have, they would stand behind this, almost like a pulpit, like what I'm doing here now. And that's how it operated with their scrolls. And what's fascinating about this is that this is the first century Torah scroll pulpit there. Again, the chances are pretty much absolutely definite that Jesus would have stood behind that very stone picked up his scroll and taught in the synagogue there. That is what he did. And this is quite amazing when you think about it like that. When you look closely, you'll see that on the side, I don't know if you can make that out, but there is a menorah. So the, the seven branched candelabra that is carved onto the side of this. In fact, the entire pulpit, there, the, the stone is designed to be a mini temple. 
So you have the menorah here from the temple. On the top, you can't see here, but it has a beautiful kind of curtain pattern, which is the veil. On the back, it has chariots, which is uh, chariots of fire, the divine presence of the Lord. So you have like this mini temple. So this again shows you that this was how they centered their worship when they were away from the center in Jerusalem. In the north here, they had this, and this is where they read their scriptures from. And I find that really fascinating. This is the only first century synagogue where you can pretty much definitely say that the Lord would have taught from that particular pulpit there. Even 2,000 years later, we can still say that with pretty much certainty. So the synagogue is extremely important, though, for our studies in the New Testament, the early church. The early church that we read about mirrored the early synagogue in their services. We have what we call church services. In the first early church, of course, they grew out of the synagogue and they mirrored the synagogue. The order of worship, the prayers, the singing, the reading of scripture, and the sermon in that respect all come from these early models of the synagogue that first arose during the Simon years. And they provided the model and foundation for the early church, which is not surprising because the early church were obviously Jewish and they consisted of Jews in the very early stages. However, the idea of a local church or synagogue being like a hub of uh, the community, the religious and the social center has been enduring. You might be more familiar with a picture like this in sort of early 19th century England, the local parish church that was put in the center to serve the parishioners that lived around it. This is how England was structured, basically. And we might, might like to think that it was the Anglican church that came up with that model. Unfortunately, the Jews were doing it 2000 years before the Anglicans ever existed or came up with it. But that is the same idea. Uh, back in the day when villages were much smaller and it was more of an agricultural community, you'd have the local church that would serve as the center and the hub and the religious life of the community serving the different parishioners in that area. And that was the idea. That's just an exact model, really, of what the synagogue was doing in ancient Israel at that time. That's what we have here. So that's the first significant development during the 400 years is the synagogue that provided the basis for the early church. We'll see that more as we go through. This was during what we call the Persian period, the Persian period. Now, at the height of the Persian rule, power is about to shift dramatically from east to west. And if you know anything about history, the whole east-west thing is still something that kind of lives on in this world. In Macedonia, this is Greece at this time, there was a man called Philip of Macedon, King Philip of Macedon. You might remember him from our studies in the book of Philippians. He founded the, the city of Philippi. King Philip of Macedon, he had a very famous son. His son was called Alexander the Great. He would grow up to be one of the best emperors in the world. That's Colin Farrell. It's the nearest historical reference I could find to Alexander the Great, acting as Alexander the Great. I just thought I'd put that in there for you. But that is the idea. Alexander the Great, most people have heard of Alexander the Great, yes, as, as he was one of the youngest and also most accomplished generals in ancient Greece. And he spread the Greek empire across the known world. He took over Babylon, Israel, Syria, Egypt, spreading his armies all the way even to India. And on his way to conquer Egypt, there's a picture there of the, in the red of the empire of Greece at its height under Alexander the Great. It's quite amazing, really, what he did. On his way to conquer Egypt, he intended, of course, to capture the city of Jerusalem on the way. So if he'd have to travel down past Israel to get to Egypt. And as was always the case, you'd take Jerusalem for your prize on the way. But there's a very interesting story about something that happened. 
as his armies approached Jerusalem, the high priest of Jerusalem at the time, a man named Jadua, uh, you'll find Jadua mentioned in the book of Nehemiah before he was high priest. He's just listed as one of the faithful priests who returned to Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, that's how he's listed. But he obviously became the high priest. But there's a story that says that he went out to meet Alexander's armies and showed him the book of Daniel. It's a fascinating story. Of course, scholars go back and forth with what actually happened. But I want to read it to you here in its full account from the historian Josephus. Josephus was a first century historian. Uh, much of what we know of the ancient world comes from him. Uh, and again, remember, I'm going to read these historical accounts to you because I want us to try and get into the mindset away from the 21st century, back into the world where all this was happening. So let's read Josephus. He was Jewish. He ended up working for the Romans, particularly so that he could record their history. And this is, comes from Antiquities Book 11. He wrote this. Now Alexander the Great, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jadua the high priest, when he heard that, was in agony and under terror, as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. He therefore ordained that the people should make supplications and should join him in offering sacrifice to God, whom he besought to protect that nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. Because, of course, usually, as history proves anything, when people went through Jerusalem, they kill everyone and take all the treasure. This is just ancient warfare. That's what happened. So this is what the people were concerned about. Greek was one of the most powerful empires now, just completely riding across the world and taking over everything. They had good cause to be concerned. But Josephus continues, the, the priest decided everyone needed to sacrifice. And then he goes on, whereupon God warned him in a dream, which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice, that he should take courage and adorn the city and open the gates that the rest should appear in white garments, but that he and the priest should meet the king in the habits proper to their order, without the dread of any ill consequences, which the providence of God would prevent. Upon which, when he rose from his sleep, he greatly rejoiced and declared to all the warning he had received from God, according to which dream he acted entirely and so waited for the coming of the king. And when he understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. And the procession was venerable and the manner of it different from that of other nations. For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood clothed with fine linen and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with the mitre on his head, having the golden plate whereon the name of God was engraved. That's the description of the high priest's clothes. It says he approached him by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. And the Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and encompass him about. Uh, it, this is a very unusual event here. And we have a couple of accounts of this from ancient history. Basically, at this moment, rather than like an army coming in, destroying, taking over, Alexander rides to the edge of the city. He sees this procession of the high priest and the, and the priests following, and he's intrigued. He stops his, his massive army. He gets off his horse from himself, and he goes on his own to meet them, which is a very unusual thing to do, because if they just killed Alexander, that would be, be done. But he went and met, met them himself. And it goes on to describe in Josephus, I'll summarize it for you for the sake of time, the other generals that are with Alexander, so all these other nations that had been taken over and were now fighting with Alexander, the generals were very concerned about this. And they basically said, well, what is he doing at this time? And they said to him, why are you doing this? And Alexander then replies that he too 
had in fact seen this procession in a dream. And that's why he decided he was going to do this. And then Josephus continues that the priests, the high priest, Jadua, then took Alexander to the temple in Jerusalem. And it says this, And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. And he was then glad. He dismissed the multitude for the present, but the next day he called them to him and bid them ask what favours they pleased of him, whereupon the high priest desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute on the seventh year, and he granted all their desires. And we know this is true. Alexander was extremely favourable to the Jewish community, which is very unusual to an empire that takes over in this area. Now, what I find fascinating is it says they showed him the book of Daniel. And they showed him a specific place in the book of Daniel where it says that the Greek empire will take over from the Persian empire and there'll be one particular person that is in charge of that. And they showed this to Alexander the Great. Now, where do you think? Let's read. I want us to read that text now in the book of Daniel so we can see what is being talked of here. Most likely, this was Daniel chapter 8. And so this is not lost on you. Remember, this is a long time before the events happened. And we know that just historically. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, gives us the time this was written in this sort of time. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, so this is still in the Babylonian empire, a vision appeared to Daniel, subsequent to the one he had earlier. And then in Daniel chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, we get, it's a very unusual vision, the way it's, the way it's written. We dealt with some of this in Revelation, but I'll read it to you. And what's interesting about this chapter is we're also given the interpretation. So this is most likely what the priest showed Alexander the Great. It says, while Daniel, 5, Daniel 8 verse 5, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, let me just explain this to you. If you're new to this sort of literature, it can be quite confusing. This is what we call a pop apocalyptic language. Often the prophets would use animals and, and symbolism to, to represent empires and things like this. But we do get it explained to us. Basically what he sees is this goat coming up upon the earth and destroying a ram, a, two a ram with two horns, one horn that was weaker than the other. If you go down to verse 20, it'll explain this to you. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Medo-Persia. So when I'm talking about the Persian Empire, it's actually the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Persian element was much stronger. And then look at verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Remember, this is before the Greco Empire had taken over the world. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. This is Alexander the Great. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not of his power. Now you track this through history. It was Alexander the Great that came 
and destroyed the Persian Empire historically. So the prophecy of Daniel is right, but what's more interestingly is that this was in fact showed to Alexander before he even did those acts, and this made him favorable to the Jews. But then also we know that this prophecy is very accurate because Alexander's empire, it says after the main guy died, four nations sprung up from him. When Alexander the Great died, he gave his kingdom, his whole empire, to his four generals. And these pertain four separate kingdoms. We'll deal with them as we go through history a little bit. They become quite significant. So this is amazing. Not only does this prove that the Bible is true and is inspired, it proves that God is the one who is in fact organizing history, all bringing us up to this point, remember, so that the world was prepared for the son, his son, to come into the world. This is the career of Alexander the Great. He did many things during his career. And I want us to appreciate some of this. As the Greek empire spread and he took control of everyone else's culture, he believed thoroughly that Greek culture was the best, if I could put it like that. And therefore, everyone he conquers should really end up becoming Greeks, which is why it's so unusual that he allowed the Jews to continue their culture, which is why that whole story I find very fascinating at the time. But he began spreading Greek culture across the world. And there's a term for this. We call it Hellenism. Yeah, classical historians will call it that. And what that means is the spread of Greek culture, a desire to unite a global empire by language, custom, and civilization. Okay, language, custom, and civilization. So one thing that Alexander the Great did is across that whole empire that I showed you on the map, he made everyone speak Greek. He, he nationalized that as the national language, much like kind of English is today, in fact, probably similar. It was Greek in these days. Now, this did cause problems for the Jewish community in years to come. We'll deal with that in future sessions. But so persistent was this idea of Hellenism, it lasted all the way until the New Testament. In fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, when we have the first deacons selected in the early church, that is due to this issue. Acts 6 verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the Hellenistic Jews were those Jews that were really the ones in the dispersion, the Greek-influenced Jews against the ones in Israel. And we see that going on throughout the world. That's one thing that Alexander was responsible for. He founded many Greek cities in the worlds that he accomplished, the most famous being the city of Alexandria, which is where it gets his name, which was in Egypt. And he even brought 100,000 Jews to Alexandria to start that community off because it was a good thing to do. He used Jews often to colonize different areas in his empire to settle different lands. And Alexandria, if you ever watched a movie like a treasure hunting movie or an Indiana Jones movie, you'll always have mentioned the famous library, the lost library of Alexandria, which was the thing where all the scrolls and all the ancient treasures, the library of Alexandria. And it was a real library. Like we have, we know quite a lot about the library of Alexandria. And that's why it's quite fascinating to study. So remember, like I said, Alexander died and he portioned off his empire to his four generals, Ptolemy, Seleucid, Cassander, and Lysimachus. These were his four generals and they took different parts of the empire. The, the two that we're interested in are Ptolemy and Seleucid because they became two empires. So you can see there the blue section on the map. That was the Seleucid Empire to the north. They took over Syria, Antioch, and all that area. The Red Empire was Alexander's general Ptolemy, who took over Egypt and all these areas down in the south, and it became the Ptolemaic Empire. 
And Israel, as you can see, is kind of the thin part stuck in the middle between these two massive empires. And you can imagine what that did for Israel. So the history basically from then on is that you had these two massive empires fighting each other for more territory and poor old Israel was just stuck in the middle. And whoever took them over, they had to sort of do whatever they said. So, and that swapped around and that becomes significant for the New Testament too. But first it was the Southern area, the red area that took control of Israel, the Ptolemies. This is called the Egyptian period of rule lasted from about 323 to 198 BC, so just over 120 years. And something very interesting happened here too that is worth noting because it connects us with the New Testament world. So after about 200 years after Alexander, the Jewish community in the city of Alexandria in Egypt had grown so large, it was like a center for Jewish life there now, that Egypt's king, Ptolemy II by this time, took notice of this Jewish community. And Greek was now the universal language. The Jewish community, the second generation ones anyway, they didn't really speak Hebrew anymore. Hebrew was maybe a religious language now used in Israel, but they didn't speak Hebrew. So they needed to be able to read the Old Testament in Greek. And of course, the king was now in charge of the famous library of Alexandria. And he had charged the, his librarian. What he was trying to do with that library is he wanted to have every book in the world at that time in that library. That is what he did. So he, he wanted the Jewish scriptures to be in that library too, in a language that he himself could read in Greek. So he charged his chief librarian to arrange for this Bible to be translated, the Jewish Bible to be translated into Greek so that everyone could read it. And interestingly, again, we actually have a letter called the letter of Aristeas from the second century BC, so still a long time before Jesus. That details the commission that the king gave for this. I want to read it to you again, in, in, not in full, but I'm going to read a big chunk of it. Again, I just want you to be familiar with some of this ancient history that just proves really the story that we're, we're talking about as we go through. So this is the letter of Aristeas. Aristeas was a Greek official to the king, Ptolemy, at this time. Uh, I'm just going to read the relevant portions, but it says, King Ptolemy sends greetings and salutation to the high priest of Eleazar. So what had happened is the king had commissioned his librarian. He said, basically, I, I want the Jewish Bible translated into Greek and I want it in my library. The librarian had said, we've got no one who can do that. You need to write to the Jews in Jerusalem and get them to send you translators and a copy of their Hebrew scriptures and bring it to us and we'll, they can assist them and do the translation here. So the king said, fine. So this is the king's letter to the high priest in Jerusalem at this time. He says, now, since I'm anxious to show my gratitude to these men and to the Jews throughout the world and to the generations yet to come, I have determined that your law shall be translated from the Hebrew tongue, which it is in use amongst you into the Greek language, that these books may be added to the other royal books in my library. It will be a kindness on your part and a regard for my zeal if you will select six elders from each of your tribes men of noble life, skilled in your law and able to interpret it, that in questions of dispute, we may be able to discover the verdict in which the majority agree, for the investigation is of the highest possible importance. I hope to win great renown by the accomplishment of this work. I have sent Andreas, the chief of my bodyguard, and Aristeus, men whom I hold in high esteem, to lay the matter before you and present you with a hundred talents of silver, the first fruits of my offering for the temple and the sacrifices and other religious rites. 
If you will write to me concerning your wishes in these matters, you will confer a great favor upon me and afford a new pledge of friendship for all your wishes shall be carried out as speedily as possible. Farewell. Now, I find this fascinating because this is a, a letter from sec, second century BC talking about the high priest in Jerusalem, the scriptures that they had, and his command here to translate them into Greece. And then this letter also records for us the reply of Eliezer the high priest. It says, Eliezer the high priest sends greetings to King Ptolemy, my, his true friend. My highest wishes are for your welfare and the welfare of the Korean Aristano, your sister and your children. I am well, I have received your letter, and I greatly rejoice by your purpose and your noble counsel. Immediately, therefore, I offered sacrifices on behalf of you, your sister and your children and your friends, and all the people prayed that your plans might prosper continually, and that Almighty God might preserve your kingdom in peace and honor, and that the translation of the holy law might, move, might prove advantageous to you and be carried out successfully. In the presence of all people, I have selected six elders from each tribe, Good men and true, I have sent them to you with a copy of your, your law. It will be a kindness, O righteous king, if you will give instruction that as soon as the translation of the law is completed, the men shall be restored to us again. Save farewell. You can hence his slight concern there that when he sends delegations off, the Jews are not treated particularly well often. He says, please send them back to us safely with our Bible, please, too. So this is the story of how it happened. It was six tribes, six elders from each tribe. So it's 72 translators in total. And that got rounded down to 70 in the common name. And they produced what is called the Septuagint, the, the word there meaning 70, the Bible 70. You might often see it with the, the Roman numerals LXX. It's how it's often abbreviated in common words. Sorry, that's a, pi a picture there of the letter of Aristarus. So this is what happened. And they went down to Egypt. They translated this Bible, but that became the Septuagint. And then they went back with their money. And again, there's much more in the letter that tells you they had days of theological discussion as they were translating this. Ptolemy was so pleased that he released any Jewish slave in the empire that he could find. So there was, again, this very good relationship that went on there. Now, you might be thinking, what is all this about? You might have never heard of the Septuagint translation, except maybe for like a pastor mentioning it uh, by the by at some point. You may never have heard of it, but I can guarantee you Every one of you will have read it at some point. If you've read the New Testament, at a certain point, you have read the Septuagint translation that happened here all those years ago in Egypt. Because one of the things about the New Testament is, remember, Greek was the language of the world at that time. And quite often when you read Jesus and the apostles and you see them quoting the Old Testament in the Bible, they're quoting from the Septuagint. So you've all read part of this translation, and that's why it was the first ever translation of the Hebrew and probably makes it one of the most important Bible translations ever. At this time, it kept God's word accessible for new generations outside Israel who did not know Hebrew at this time. And as a result, uh, Jesus and the apostles used it all the time as they uh, preached all across the known world with Jesus in Israel, but the apostles going further to the Greek speaking world. Many of the words that we have in the, in the New Testament, in fact, come from the Septuagint. Very famous words. You've probably heard me say it. Christos, Jesus Christ, the name Christ, Christos there. That is a word that comes from the Septuagint. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means the anointed one. The word Evangelion, the gospel, that also comes from the Greek Septuagint, which the New Testament translators obviously used. Now, 
it was really the Bible of the early church. So when we're coming to the times of Jesus in the early church, we're reading the Septuagint a lot of the time. Now, it's hugely significant because this was all happening throughout the silent years. So just with these two empires, these two things, we've seen fulfilled prophecy with Alexander the Great. We've seen history that we are all really kind of part of our history goes back to the Greek empire in many ways and in many places. So we've seen this. We've seen that he was fulfilling ancient Hebrew prophecies. We've seen how the story develops. This is all preparing the synagogue, the Bible, all being put in place for the preaching of the gospel that was about to happen when Jesus came and that would subsequently transform the world and which is the reason why Jesus is the most influential man in human history. We're going to leave it there. We'll pick it up next week as we look at these last two empires before we move into the time of the gospels. Now, you might still be thinking, how does all this relate to me? Ancient history is very interesting. I did say we'd have to do a bit of groundwork in ancient history before we get up to the preaching of the word in that respect. Hopefully we've kept it as short as we can and we'll do a little bit more next week as we go through. But the idea, remember, we're doing this hopefully so that when we do get to reading the Gospels, it's going to revolutionize our understanding of them. And you'll read them with a better depth and clarity and understanding, which ultimately will give you a better view of Jesus Christ, which ultimately will take you into a deeper relationship with him. That's the chain that I'm following here. So hopefully we can all stay together on this journey. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.